Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. In today's interview, I get to connect with two women who are working at equally amazing organizations who happen to be married to each other. We have them both on the show today at the same time to share their experience in becoming parents for the first time. It wasn't an easy route necessarily, as they share in the stories in this episode. It took much longer than they expected to become pregnant. And as self-described type A and driven people, they said it took a lot of patience and resilience to work through it. And in some ways, it brought their relationship together. Today on the show, they have a five-month-old, and I am so excited and so thankful because if you have a kid, you know what it's like to have a five-month-old. So first of all, thank you for joining us with a five-month-old, both of you at the same time, taking time away from parenting and work. That's huge, and I'm really grateful that you joined us on the show. What I love about our conversation today was first, how much intentionality they bring to their partnership in the work that they do. They are thoughtful and curious. And second, I really love they use their relationship as a platform to learn. They shared with me, you can learn from us as queer parents. And in today's episode, we talk about building your own story and your own path when there isn't necessarily a given model ahead of you. In many ways, that's the path of entrepreneurship and motherhood because not everything is clear or easy from the get-go. Lots of things are new and you're making it up as you go along. And as a queer couple, that can be even more true. What's the normal? What does a partnership look like? What if you aren't heteronormative? What does it take to carve out your roles as parents when you don't have standardized gender roles? And what does it look like to take parental leave if you're both mothers? All of these questions are things that come up when you're carving out what a new thing looks like. And in this case, relationships. And for many of us, it's a chance to get to learn and to grow because we're all asking similar questions. Tracy Candido is the Director of Programs and Events at LMHQ, and she's the Founder and Director of Lady Boss, and she's really good at organizing and planning events. Karina Mangu Ward is a change lead at August. August is a company based in Brooklyn, New York, that focuses on organizational change design, and they help nurture more creative, self-managing, and productive teams. Today, we get to dig in and hear their stories about motherhood, parenting, taking leave, and work. And this interview was so good and so hard to cut down to just the gems that I ended up breaking it into two different episodes. So take a listen to this first half of the podcast episode interview with Tracy and Karina. And if you want to hear the second half, we will be back next week. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. So many charities to give money to. Today's episode is brought to you by Hippo Give, which is a new and simpler way to support the organizations and causes that you care about. I just made a donation to Planned Parenthood. It took about five seconds. Go to startuppregnant.com slash charity. And you can learn more about how Hippo Give is currently matching all of your first-time donations up to the first $50. So if you want to donate money, go to startuppregnant.com slash charity. It's super easy. There are instructions for how to do it. And there's a free $50 to donate to any charity of your choice. 
As always, hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute to leave us a review, we would love that. If you need any of the show notes from the show, head to startuppregnant.com. All right, everybody, I have two amazing people on the line. Welcome, Karina and Tracy. Hi. Thanks. Hello. Hi. I am so glad you're here. I know that I have a 100 things that I want to ask you questions about, and we're going to unpack as much as we can in the time that we have together. So I want to start by asking you to to share with everybody your parenting journey. How did you meet? And when did you decide to become parents? And take us through it. So Karina and I are married. We got married four years ago, and we've been together for eight years. How did we meet? We met at the, Karina, what is it called? TCTV. It's an independent documentary company. Downtown Community Television, possibly, is what that stands for. And I was doing a project at their end of summer party. Karina was taking a class there. She was at the party and we met there and then have been together ever since. And when we were talking about getting married, we know we talked about how we wanted to grow family. And Karina was really excited about having kids. And I honestly had, had never really thought maybe that I would have a family in the way that I do now in terms of, you know, feeling like fulfilled in a relationship with somebody enough to feel like raising a child in that relationship was going to be a healthy environment. But once I met Karina, you know, I I was a little bit more excited about going down that road. Still a little hesitant though. And when we talked about the way that we were going to get pregnant, it just kind of made sense that I'm two years older. At the time, I was, I think, 33, right, Karina? I think you were even 32 when we got married and started the process of thinking about it that year. Yeah. And I'm 36 now. So you can see how long it's taken. Our son is five months old now. We went down that road and there's a lot of education that could happen right now where I talk about all of the different ways that same-sex couples, specifically two women, can get pregnant. You know, in short, I'm happy to go into more detail, but in short, you know, we tried them all. (laughs) I think the initial obstacle we thought that we were going to face was having to buy sperm and having a third party involved. And it ended up being that the major obstacle was, in fact, that, you know, I had unexplained infertility and nothing was working. And it took a really long time because of that reason. And in part, because one of the details of our pregnancy journey was that we decided to work with what's called a known donor, which is somebody that we know giving us their sperm, donating us their sperm, which is actually a much lengthier process and can take, you know, took us, I think, almost a year before we even could start inseminating because of the legal process that's involved and the testing that's involved as well. Eventually, last October, I was pregnant after a round of IVF. And that whole process, I think for me was really, Karina can speak to her her own process, but it was incredibly, just the unexplained infertility was incredibly devastating. And 
through the whole experience, I had never gotten pregnant. So it wasn't like I had the devastation of any like miscarriages or anything like that. But, you know, when we were finally pregnant, it was just like, thank God, (laughs) thank effing God, because it took so long and, you know, so expensive. And it really is very trying. And it was like a real lesson in persistence. It was a testament to our relationship, I would say. We we could talk more about this later in terms of the intentionality of Karina and I's relationship, our relationship as a queer couple. But, you know, we built our relationship from scratch in terms of like not taking anything for granted. So that's where we were. That's where we are. And we had a baby and he's five months old now. So that is my little nugget about, you know, the pregnancy journey up until now. I am so thankful that you share this out loud because it is such a journey that so many women go through that they don't talk about or that we don't hear enough about. That thing that you just said about how you built your relationship intentionally, I cannot wait to ask you more about that. And before I get to that question, Karina, I'd love to ask you, how did this affect both your relationship to each other and your work lives, this experience that you went through? It was an interesting test for our relationship because I think Tracy and I are very type A driven, controlling people who are incredibly ambitious in our careers and in our personal lives. And when Tracy talks about us bringing intention to our relationship, I think we bring intention to everything that we do from the way that we show up at work to the way we show up in our friendships and show up in our families. And I think the biggest impact of this on me was that as much intention and will and attempts at control that we brought to this process of trying to become parents, it didn't matter. We couldn't control it. We couldn't micromanage it. We couldn't intend it into the world. We had to have patience with each other and with the process and something that we frankly didn't understand what was happening. We had to ask for help. We had to try things and fail again and again and again. And all of that was a real trial and a real rude awakening for me as a person to realize that there are some things that you can't control. And I spent a lot of time, I think, during that journey, just sitting with my own sadness that it wasn't happening. Because once we decided we wanted to be parents, we wanted it so much And the clearer it became in our minds as a thing that we wanted to create this family, to go from being just a couple to being a family, I think the desire grew and grew. And knowing that unlike going out and getting the next job or starting the next project, it wasn't something that we could just manifest was just incredibly challenging. And I think the flip side of that is that in the rest of my life and certainly in my career, I think I'm trying to loosen my grip on attempting to manage and control everything and trying to stay more aware of what are actually the things that are outside of my control and what are the things where I'm working within a larger system. Like, for example, we spent just years inside the medical industrial complex trying to get our needs met and trying to survive as a queer couple and trying to finance that whole process and just being more, I think, at peace in the chaos and in the unknowing of journeys like that. And, you know, I switched jobs in the midst of this process. I switched jobs when Tracy was three months pregnant. And I honestly think that it was the process of building the muscles of getting through the fertility struggle that helped me figure out that it was okay to change and I didn't need to understand it all. 
I needed to be heading in a new direction and I just needed to do it. And I would figure it out as I got through it. So I just think there just was a huge number of lessons learned through kind of the trials of those years that we were trying to make this journey to being a parent that I just see payoff in all these other areas of my life. And it was hard, but I think I'm grateful for all of that. So, and I completely second what Tracy said. I think that we came out stronger. I mean, I know couples that we know that fertility stuff has just been such a difficult time for them. And it was hard for us both, but I think it was hard for us together. And we were able to kind of knit our relationship and knit our sorrow and our eventual success into something that kind of made us stronger. So you've both mentioned this word intentionality as something that you brought to the relationship even before you started down the parenting and pregnancy journey. Where does this come from? Is this something that you were born with? Is there a moment? Is there a practice? I'm really curious because it seems like something that's so rooted and so important in who you are, both separately and together. Tracy, I'll turn it back to you first. Where does this intentionality in yourself, in your life, in your relationships come from? Does it have an origin? On the one hand, it comes natural to both of us to strip something down to the essential qualities and really turn them over and question them. I think Corinne and I both don't really take anything for granted as people. And that, you know, might come from our backgrounds. You know, I think a lot of it comes from being a queer person in the world where we haven't really been able to rely on, you know, any sort of like heteronormative standard to fall back on. So in a way, we've had to look at our lives and say, you know, okay, well, like, what do we want to do? We can do anything because, you know, there are less, I think, social pressures on or a model even to compare ourselves to, you know, so I think it's kind of a societal thing. But I think it's also, as Karina said, like we're incredibly driven people. And, you know, I heard somewhere once that like lucky people make their own luck. Usually when, you know, somebody gets a big, I don't know, thing, promotion or, you know, they start something, they have something that people covet. They say, how did you get that? You know, I think that the more opportunities you make for yourself, the more opportunities you're able to acquire and that will work out for you. And I think that that comes down to setting intentions for yourself. I mean, it's kind of like goal setting as well. But, you know, I think that communication is a big part of it too. As queer people, language is a really big part of our lives. We were joking before about how we rely on the word guys too much. Hey guys, right? And Mm -hmm. and when we strip that away again and we boil it down to, you know, how do we want to be addressed as people? It always comes back to asking the question of what we really want because there is no model. So it's kind of a roundabout way to say, you know, why I think we value this idea of intentionality, why we value it so much. During this whole process, one of the things that it sounds like too is that you had a choice in how you show up, right? How do you respond to something like this that goes beyond the idea or the capacity to will it into being? How do you respond? And then how do you respond as a partnership and as a couple? Were there ever any breaking points? How did you know to turn towards each other? And were there periods where you had to navigate new ways of communicating or new ways of having conversations with each other? There was a moment where we got maybe eight months in to the fertility process. And I would say there was a peak of frustration where we had been trying the same thing and then we tried a new method and a new method and we were working with a fertility practice that we were just deeply unhappy with. 
and we felt really, really, really stuck. And in order to get through that, and I think we were working from different assumptions about the best way to move forward. Even though we're both pretty hard driving people, I tend to be the more hard driving, linear, rational, like, let's just keep hammering at the problem. And Tracy tends to be a little bit more the reflective kind of, let's take a pause and evaluate. And I think the peak frustration was where sort of, I wanted to just keep driving forward and Tracy needed a moment of of pause and a break. And we really had to sit down and have that conversation and ask for some help to have that conversation. And we ended up taking a break and we ended up putting everything on the table. We didn't take anything as an assumption. You know, do we have to keep working with this practice? Like, no. Do we have to keep doing inseminations this way? No. You know, what can we do that's actually different that would relieve the pressure and relieve the stress? And I think it just got difficult because we were working from different places and we just had to really pause and get clear about what we wanted and get clear about what our strategy was and get clear that we needed some time to breathe and just relax and like enjoy ourselves for a little bit before we kind of powered on with the process. So that was definitely a moment for me where I think it kind of could have gone sour and it didn't because we brought ourselves back together. But I don't know. What do you think, Tracy? Yeah. I mean, I think that resonates with me. I should also say too that back to the idea of like when somebody has something that other people covet and they're like, how did you get that? Because it seems so easy and really a lot of hard work and intentionality goes into something and maybe even training. Karina and I early on in our relationship realized that we had completely different communication styles and based on the way our families communicate, you know, and that's not uncommon in a relationship. And I think oftentimes people end up just kind of like resting on old familiar patterns, you know, and it's comfortable and, you know, you don't have the best communication style, but whatever, it's, you're comfortable with it. And Kryn and I are (laughs) really, they're overachievers with everything. So we were like, you know, this isn't working and we are really in love and we want to make sure that we understand each other and can support each other. So we got trained in a communication style called Imago and it is really a wonderful tool, not only for couples, but also for, you know, the workplace. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's, I guess it's kind of a three-step process, even though that's very basic way to describe it. But it's really all about like empathy and validation and mirroring the person so that they can feel seen and heard. And in a relationship, any relationship, I think that's all we want as human beings. And so we learned that really early on. And I think we really naturalized or like internalize that process of communication in order to really be aware of our defenses. It has really served us well, I would say, over the years that we've been together, especially in this fertility process, because that foundation that we built with the Imago training has supported her facilitation work because now she's able to say what I think I hear you saying is, which is actually also a part of the Imago training too. So that kind of idea of communication training was really, really valuable for us and took us a long way when things got really, really hard. And the experience that you have with this kind of stuff, there's not even any language for it. I feel even as a new parent, there is no other experience to compare it to. I have a master's in visual culture and there's this idea that visual icons or or objects are, you know, they stand in for language because when something is new, like when 9-11 happened, there was no language for that. And the memorials that, you know, occurred downtown at Ground Zero, that was the visualization that stood in for the lack of ways to talk about what happened. So just being able to have kind of a structure in place where 
we can communicate effectively and even with really, really difficult, dark emotional stuff, I think it's really helped us. Oh, I think that's so important. Oh, go ahead. I use Imago at work all the time. I don't name it that, but I spend a lot of time just listening to people in the teams that I work with, mirroring back what they've said to me, validating their emotion and sort of just empathizing with them. And having built that muscle over eight years with Tracy, I really think that I can show up at work as such a better teammate and a better consultant and facilitator. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have the Imago framework as a thing to fall back on. Even with our baby now, when he is like fussing about something, he's a pretty good baby. He's pretty happy and doesn't really fuss a lot. So when he does, you know, it would be easy for us to say, it's okay. It's okay. You know, but we try to say, I hear you. I know. I hear you. Like even now, I think it's an important foundation for us to like continue through our family. Oh, I love that so much. Everything you're saying, I want to like... I just want to slow down and expand it all because there's so much in here that I think is so interesting to dissect. Hey, everyone, it's Sarah here in the post editing. And if you can't tell what I'm struggling to put into words is how important I think things like therapy and ongoing lifelong learning for our communication style, our connection with others, how important that really is. And I think um, we're all trying to say that in this show. What I want to do now is share the Imago technique and tell you a little bit about what it is. After I interviewed them, I went and did a little bit of research on this technique because I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So in broad strokes, the first step is called mirroring. And that's listening without judgment. So when your partner or somebody that you're speaking with says something to you, you reflect back to them and you mirror that message. Step two is validation. Validation, it's not just enough to listen, but we validate. And in an article, which I'll link in the show notes, that describes this whole technique, it says it's not just enough to be heard. It's this idea of, do you see that I'm not crazy? Step three is to empathize. And in empathizing, you can say statements like, oh, I imagine that you might be feeling, or I can see that you're feeling. And it's talking about what somebody might be feeling in relation to what they've just shared. One important note is that because it's impossible to know exactly what somebody else feels, you have to also check for accuracy and say, is that what you're feeling? And step four is called giving the gift, which is asking for a small positive request and ask for something simple. Right now, can I make a request? Can you say something kind to me? Can you give me a hug? Can you finish this project up while I just sit down for a minute and catch my breath. That in a nutshell, in broad strokes, and you can learn so much more about it, is the Imago technique. But now let's get back to Tracy and Karina. I don't know of that many folks who would in a relationship stop and say, hey, let's take a course together. Like, let's take a training. (laughs) And this looks like an awesome thing. Communication style. I mean, I do know some because my partner and I have done some things like that. So I think you've come to the right show because there's a lot of geeks that come on this show, which is great. But Sarah, it's also called counseling. 
True. Couple, couples go to counseling. True. And there are counselors that do teach Imago too. So but I don't know if that's the norm, right? Like I think there's so many people out there who don't even get to do things like that. Like it's a goal to elevate the conversation to be like, look how awesome this can be. And I may be completely wrong. So, you know, let's also put that out there. I want to dive into this idea that you said, specifically now moving to your parenting experience, because you have a five-month-old, congratulations. Now you're parents, and there's a third person in the room, and you're identifying language and communicating with a new human right there with you. How has the parenting journey been for you? And I mean, you throw everything that's even harder, right? Like getting no sleep, having brand new things to learn. You're upping the ante yet again. How are you navigating that and how is it going? I think I have a little bit of a unique experience as a parent because I'm a mother, but I didn't carry my baby. And I think there, there are other people that have that experience, people that you know adopt, certainly trans folks. But there's something about trying to carve out a space to be a mother to a baby that I'm not nursing that's been really interesting. When I think about like hetero relationships, I think could be a really interesting model. Tracy and I were really committed and we talked a lot when we were pregnant about being 50-50 parents. And so trying to figure out how that actually manifests when there's a baby in the room and you have to take care of it, it kind of came down initially to quite a logistical conversation of what are you going to handle and what am I going to handle? The thing that I took on was the baby's sleep. So everything related to when does the baby sleep? How does he sleep? How do we get him to sleep? Do we sleep train? When does he need to eat when he's sleeping? Carrying all of the anxiety around that, honestly, that's what's made me feel like a parent because I had that piece of work to hold and I've felt so purposeful in trying to figure out how our baby is well-rested and how that makes him a happy person in the world. It's hard for me that I can't breastfeed. It's hard for me that that's Tracy's thing and that I can't help with that. But I think by being clear about what Tracy handles, which is you know breastfeeding, and now as he's starting to eat solids, food, she really sets the course on that. And me continuing to think about how he rests, I just think it's really instructive to be explicit and intentional about that. And we've had moments over the past five months where things have kind of gotten out of balance or we've been confused about who's doing what because things start to overlap, you know, eating and sleeping and sleeping while eating and like that things got messy at points. We just pause and we have a conversation and we say, what are your expectations? How have things changed? And how do we need to change things up going forward? It's by doing the work of parenting that's made me feel like a parent and by knowing what is in my domain and is my responsibility gives me the power. I think I've built a really close relationship with him because of that. I'm the one that is the last person to see him when he goes to bed. I'm the one who goes and gets him in the night when he wakes up. I'm the one who's decided, you know, when do we swaddle him and unswaddle him? And I just love thinking about all that stuff. And I probably read too much stuff on Google, <laughs> I have to admit, but that's okay. You know, that's my piece of the work. And that's how we bonded. This idea of divide and conquer in some respects, like whose domain is what and how do you navigate it is really interesting because I guess the other way could be like, we're both going to think about everything together. And that can be so time consuming and difficult. Like if you're both thinking through every single piece, then you never sleep. And mm. if you have to come to consensus around everything, like I find it a relief when Tracy makes the decisions about the things that are sort of in her divide and conquer. And 
it took me a while to learn to just say, absolutely, I trust you. That sounds like the right thing to do. And she does the same for me. And I think that level of mutual respect in the divide and conquer is what's critical. Because if we were dividing and conquering, and then one of us was trying to oversee and micromanage the other, that wouldn't work. But I think we have the trust to make that happen. I don't know. What do you think, Tracy? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I love my relationship with Karina so much is you know, while we're in love and we have a romantic relationship, we're also amazing partners. We are such a good team. You know, the fact that trust is there is just, I don't know how I would be able to do it. I mean, (laughs) to be a mother that carries the baby that goes through all the pregnancy, I mean, not to mention that it was my body that went through all of the fertility stuff too. Just like the physical stuff of all that is so much. And it's really hard to understand what that's like until you've been through it, I think. You know, I think I just, I wasn't interested really in having kids unless I had a 50-50 partnership or, you know, something that kind of looked like that because I wasn't interested in perpetuating that same model, that outdated model of, you know, the mother doing 75% of the work literally because they're the body, you know, they're the physical body where they have to do most of that work. On the other side, I think that because I am the breastfeeding mother, I think a lot of women really love the fact that they are the person in their parent relationship that is the breastfeeding parent. And I mean, mostly in in hetero couples, I can imagine that owning that role of mother in a hetero couple feels different than when, you know, your kid has two moms because our roles as mothers don't conflict. They are complementary. And I love the fact that my kid has two moms. I mean, who wouldn't want two moms? I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I'm the breastfeeding mom is really challenging alongside Karina is what I mean. Where if I was with somebody who didn't ever have the capacity to breastfeed, who wasn't also a mother, maybe I might feel differently because the thought wouldn't maybe ever cross my mind. It just would never be a reality. But the fact that now I'm the mom that has to be pulled away from my desk every you know two to three hours to pump where I can't take a day off ever from pumping. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, until I stop breastfeeding, you know, if I'm, you know, not feeling well and I stay home from work and, you know, I still have to pump, you know, if Karina and I took a day off to just spend the day together and we planned this whole day and then we were both like, oh my God, we have to go home because you have to pump, you mm-hmm. know, and feeling like really that jealousy where she's a mom, but she's able to have a, maybe a little bit more access to her time in a way that I do not right now. That's a hard point for me. As a consultant, I'm embedded in the offices almost full time of the organizations that I'm consulting with. I literally wouldn't be able to do my job and pump the way that Tracy has to pump. I would have to have major accommodations and would have to miss, you know, a significant chunk of the sort of fluid way that my work is done. And I really think of it as like non bio mom privilege. And I think it's an extension of the way that male privilege operates within hetero relationships that can often be invisible, but like we're both women and we're both mothers. And yet I have a significantly more freedom in the way that I'm able to operate because I'm not breastfeeding. And I just think it illuminates something. When Tracy was pregnant, I decided not to drink because it felt sort of like unequitable that like I'm out enjoying myself, having a drink. I can stay out late and Tracy can't drink and is exhausted and like needs to go home. And the privilege that I had because I wasn't carrying our future child 
was really glaring. And honestly, when I wasn't drinking during that period, I've never gotten more questions about anything. Everyone at my office was like, hold on, wait, what? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Solidarity? Equity? I don't get it. I mean, she should just be like, cool, do whatever you want to do. I found myself explaining that more than even talking about the fact that we had a known donor. People were so curious that I chose to do that. It just felt on principle for the way that we were trying to model having an equitable experience from the very beginning. Did you find yourself taking on more work of other types during her pregnancy or even right now while you're breastfeeding? Does that weigh in where there's so much biological work on the bio mom? How do you think about that? I think I do more physical stuff. Like I lift all the heavy stuff and I put stuff in storage and I take out the garbage and I do a little bit more of the like the dishwasher and the, sort of that stuff, which I do think that probably falls along more traditional gender lines. At the end of the day, it feels like it nets out to 50-50. So yeah, I would say that there's like a variety of other stuff that I take on, but we've always split our household stuffs in ways that also feels equitable. So I'd be doing that stuff anyway, because that tends to be more of the stuff that I do in our household. Mm. I think that's so interesting because there's so many ways to divide up work and sometimes it's along traditional gender roles and sometimes it's not. And there's so many factors that go into it. In our household, I do more of the daycare drop-offs and pickups because I don't have a commute and my partner has two hours of commute. It's like, well, then my commute is taking the child. And does it look more and smell more like a female gender role? Sure. There's so many different things involved in it. So how are you doing at five months old? When did you guys go back to work? Ah, I did it. When did you two? (laughs) We were talking about this before. When did you two go back to work? And how was parental leave? Tell us about this. I also just want to say, too, about this gender roles thing with like taking out the garbage. I actually have a bad back and pregnancy didn't do me any favors with that. And so I'm often like, Karina's often like, don't be a hero. Just let me like open the window, you know, like don't hurt your back because really I'm like out of commission for a while if I do. So that's also part of it, I would say. Plus also, I don't like taking out the trash. It's annoying. And Karina (laughs) is not fussed by it, you know? So that's also, I think, first of of all, first of all, I hate taking out the trash. I am (laughs) fussed by it, but I do it. And second of all, Tracy threw out her back three Christmases in a row, which meant that I had to do all the present lifting and I had to set up the tree at her mom's house and do all of this Michigas. And ever since then, I've been like, don't be a hero because (laughs) it doesn't pay off in the long run for me. So it's self-serving. Like, let's be real. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So maternity leave. So I've been back to work, I think three months now. Maternity leave at LMHQ. So we're run by the Downtown Alliance. And the policy at the Downtown Alliance is that you get one week paid for every year that you have worked there. And they don't prorate it. So I, at the time, was at the Downtown Alliance for two and a half years. So I got two weeks paid maternity leave. Great benefits in other areas, not great family leave policy. So I saved my paid time off, which, like I said, they have, in my opinion, the vacation and sick and personal leave benefits are pretty generous. So I was able to make that work. I took 13 weeks and Karina can talk about her leave in more detail, but she essentially got 16 weeks of paid leave. So more than me, even though I was carrying a baby inside of my body. And maternity leave was really interesting. It was a summer. So our baby's name is August. 
he was born June 21st and it was lovely to have sunny days and, you know, just put on the Birkenstocks and, you know, go to the park. We live right by Prospect Park. But also it was a really hot in the beginning. There was a 90 degree week or two and he was very little, like weeks old. And we kind of had one of those, you know, new parent moments where we brought the baby outside and he got really red and hot. And, you know, we were like, oh God, we're failing at this already. Overall, I think it was a really wonderful time for us both to be off and to be taking walks every day and talking about how we wanted returning to work to be. I came back to work. Karina stayed home with our son for a couple of weeks. And, you know, Karina, you should talk about what that was like. That was hard for me because I wanted to return gradually. I thought that that was going to be the best way to transition back to work. And it was a really good choice. But I kind of had the worst parts of both roles of like, you know, a traditional dad role where I was like going back to work and my wife was staying home with my kid. That was really where I wanted to be. The working mom role also then pump all day long. So it was hard. And I wanted to come home and just have fun with my wife and my kid. And Karina would be like, he cried all day. And so like, I'm exhausted. Take him. Like, I don't want to talk to you or to, mm-hmm. or to anyone. That was very interesting in terms of like how that all played out. And and now, you know, being back at work, I love my job and I love the work that I do curating talks and programs and workshops and, you know, doing stuff about the future of work is just so important. It's a real slog, you know, it's full time and it's just exhausting. And not being able to have access to my brain is incredibly frustrating because I used to be 10 steps ahead. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like at zero, maybe one step behind and to not be able to rely on that anymore. Plus also the fact that I am a creative person and and I get paid to be creative and to be feeling like I'm squeezing blood from a stone sometimes because of how sleep deprived my brain is. You know, I think I'm used to being tired now, so I don't necessarily feel like tired, tired, but I just know that my brain does not have the right chemicals in it anymore, especially breastfeeding and pumping is exhausting because you have to burn so many calories to make breast milk. So at the end of a pumping session, it's just like literally draining, you know? So it's really hard. And you've been back at work for a little less than two months now. How long has it been? Karina or me? Oh, sorry, Tracy, you. Oh, yeah. I've been back three months, I think. I came back early September, mid-September, and now it's December 1st. So, Mm. yeah. Has the edge come off a little bit or is it still in the slog? What would you say? It took me about a month to six weeks to catch up. Luckily, over the summer, there is no programming. So I was able to, before I left, I worked up until my due date. And August was born five days later. But I was able to front load all of my programming for the fall, but then, you know, the details have to fall into place, managing all the talent and the speakers and all the content. So I was kind of building the plane while flying it, which is not the way I am too organized for that. I do not like doing that. It's too stressful, but that's where I found myself. So I was doing that. Once I finally caught up, you know, I have to now program the spring season. And again, it's like being creative is really uh, very difficult right now. And the edge has not worn off. It's a new normal, but I'm not entirely used to it yet. And to be honest, I still have to set alarms to pump because I would just forget. I mean, you know, the physical feeling that you feel like when it's time, you know, I mean, maybe this is TMI, but there are no signs of in my shirt of, you know, needing to pump. 
I'm like very lucky in that respect. I know a lot of women, like it's just a massacre. Um, but <laughs> but you yeah, have to like remind a lot yourself. Of, yeah. A lot of women are like, you know, have like gotten mad at me because I'm like not a leaker. But yeah, so that's all to say it's still really hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure when it's going to get any better. Maybe when we start getting some sleep. Yes. Before I move over to Karina and ask you about your parental leave policy, I do want to say that like, for people listening in and also for you on this call, in one of the earlier interviews we did with Lauren, with Lauren Brody, she talked about how almost all women don't feel ready to be back at work until seven months. That corresponds directly with the average age that kids are sleeping through the night. So it's very clear, like the data is very clear, we're just in a very strange country, that women feel ready to go back to work at seven months because the baby's sleeping through the night. And then almost everyone I've interviewed has said at about the 12-month mark, they start to feel like the stride comes back. And I'll just add one more note. Sarah Lacey, who is we just interviewed as well, she said that women take a 15% productivity hit for about two or three years when they have a baby. But what they gain in productivity lasts for the next 30, 40, or 50 years. And it's like a rewiring of the system because you get that much more efficient. Like the things you're going through right now, learning how to fly the plane by the seat of your pants, one-handed, the dividends just aren't paid right now. So I think I'm trying to say I see you and I hear you and I've been there. And for the women who are listening, we're all in these things. And it gets better. (laughs) And, you know, it gets better. And I think this is one of the hardest things, the most amazing things that women do is like work in this first year and do such amazing work. And also, so here's something that I'm sure the three of us could talk about for so long and do amazing work and work at amazing companies and love what we do because the companies you work at, maybe Karina, I'm going to come back to you, but Tracy, I want to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about A, LMHQ, and then also you founded Lady Boss. Can you tell us about both of those? I should also say we just had Sarah Lacey here at LMHQ um, for a HarperCollins business book event that we did with them. LMHQ stands for Lower Manhattan Headquarters. We are a workspace, event venue, and meeting space run by the Alliance for Downtown New York, which is the business improvement district for Lower Manhattan. The Downtown Alliance is like 20 some odd years old and Seven years ago, they ran a co-working space to provide a resource to freelancers and businesses that were moving downtown. They had since closed that because of the proliferation of other co-working spaces taking a large real estate footprint in lower Manhattan and, of course, around the rest of the city. And one of the things that the creative and digital businesses and tech businesses that were in large numbers moving to lower Manhattan wanted was a place to convene and to kind of like work outside of their office. So with this really great event venue, which is where I curate our public programming, it has an eye toward the future of work you know, prominent people in their industry talking about disruptions. We have a women's breakfast once a month. That's our most popular program. And I really like to assert that we try to push the needle a little bit for the people coming to, you know, get tips on how to get ahead in their careers. They get insight from these speakers. They get actionable takeaways. They leave, you know, maybe having met a new person to add to their network. So it's really fulfilling work. So this is like my calling. I really love doing this stuff. And I've been doing it for about almost three years now, working with LMHQ. Lady Boss, 
I started that in 2014 at the end of the year because I was looking for a community of women who were similar to me and that I I felt kind of like a work misfit where never really quite fit in, had great relationships with coworkers and colleagues. And I, I loved to be part of a team, but often felt like it was kind of challenging to a certain degree because I would often be very like eager at work and very excited and spoke my mind and I was outspoken. And I started Lady Boss because I couldn't find anything like that. I also read Charles Sandberg's Lean In and it did not speak to me in any way, shape or form. So I felt like there was a new conversation to be had around feminism and how to relate it to your professional development and to your career, especially if you are kind of like early middle career. You know, there were a lot of resources for women straight out of college and a lot of resources for women in the C-suite, you know, leadership training and things like that. But nothing for, you know, women in the middle. And I feel like that's like the longest part of your career often. There also weren't a lot of resources for number one, diversity in industry. Creative business really encompasses a lot of things. If you feel like you're in kind of creative work, you can be in a lot of different industries and a lot of the resources or women's groups were, you know, women in communication or women in media. Also, there wasn't a lot of diversity in the groups that I was seeing. I would often go to a networking event and feel like the only queer person in the room. I didn't really want to go to any more networking events where I was like handed a pink notebook or, you know, offered like rosé or, you know, a place to get my nails done or get a blowout or whatever. Like I wasn't into that. So I wanted to provide like a almost kind of gender neutral with lady boss, you know, that kind of term being tongue in cheek environment for other women like me. So I started it and it was a monthly event series. And similar to the work that I do at LMHQ, it was really trying to have 2.0 conversations where it's building on existing thought leadership. And it was really a vulnerable environment. And I think we were really successful for a couple of years, grew to, you know, over 2000 women in the network that had been to the events in just two years. But, you know, then I got pregnant and had that first trimester and was exhausted and (laughs) working at LMHQ doing, you know, similar work and put the Lady Boss events on the back burner. And, you know, I've slowly been sending out newsletters occasionally, but for now it's kind of on hiatus as I focus on full-time work at LMHQ and the women's breakfast here. And then of course, having a baby is a full-time job. It is. (laughs) I love what you've written on Lady Boss, by the way. So if people are listening, I know it's on hiatus for now because you have another side hustle slash full-time human in your life. Check out this site and I'll include it in the show notes. Just the idea of 2.0 conversations and understanding how gender affects us, but taking the stance that the future of work might not look like what work looks like today, rather than trying to add a whole bunch of band-aids or figure out how to get the high heels to fit into the grate. It's like, why do we have a grate? Let's rethink the (laughs) beginning, you know, right? Like it's that kind of conversation that's so fascinating. So at this point, I have learned so much from both Tracy and Karina, and I am so grateful for them for sharing their journey and for taking us inside their lives in a very personal way to share what it looks like to be navigating a new model of parenting. On the next episode of the Startup Pregnant Podcast, we are going to continue the conversation and we're going to get to hear from Karina about all of the work that she does at August. And we also are going to take a look at what it takes to construct a parental leave policy. We don't have all of the answers, but we do have a lot of questions. So tune in next week when we come back to our conversation with Tracy and Karina. 
Thank you so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit it home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on startuppregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.